Hello everyone. How are you feeling? Good? Smart? Confused? Overwhelmed? Uh, I'm Bob Walham. I'm a partner at CINT. I'm very happy to have you all here with us this afternoon. I have a mission to tell you quickly and in a nice way who we are. I wrote a little thing. We build digital solutions that transform businesses. Well, that's nice, but I wanted to have a little bit more open conversation about who we are. And the thing is, in a very simple way, in reality, we are damn good people that love complex problems and love to solve them with people. We've been doing this for 28 years with large clients around the world and having a lot of fun by doing that with people like you guys. So if you have complex problems, and we all do, if you want to talk to us, happy to help you solve your problems, have fun the process. We have a tagline that says, make that tomorrow. I think it's a thing that explains a little bit that vibe. But I wanted, before I introduce the panel, I just wanted to tell you that we are here to make your tomorrow. The whole afternoon, the whole day, this afternoon, is to have smart and intelligent conversations that will help you build your tomorrow. To lead the panel today, I'm honored to invite our president and co-founder, Bruno Gicardi, who is also, in a more human perspective, a frustrated professional soccer player, which is not what, I'm gonna, what we're going to talk about, but uh, happy to invite Bruno here. Bruno, come on, please. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, everyone. Super excited to be here again after a long uh, pandemic period. Uh, super excited to be talking about uh, customer centricity and how to reorganize our company. So this will be probably one of the few uh, uh, chats at uh, South by Southwest that we're not talking about ChatGPT. <laughs> So it will be some, about something else, something that we think it's a very important. It's actually how to move the, the speed of innovation and how actually the gigantic transformation that we have to make at our companies to actually be able to do that. And I'm uh, super happy to have here this uh, amazing panel, those companies that have just you know, been that journey. Uh, so with no further ado, I'll ask them each other to, uh, to each one of you kind of to introduce ourselves and then we can just Go after it. Darren? Right. Yes, my name is Darren Gilroy. I work for Sun Life in Canada, responsible for digital transformation, organization, what we do, how we do it. Fabrizio? Um, Fabrizio, I'm a Chief Experience Design Officer at Itaú. Um, so I lead the team that builds experiences. Uh, across uh, different channels, segments throughout the, the organization. 
Um, and, um, and I think it's important to say Litau, uh, which is actually a sponsor of the of South, of Southwest. Um, it's, a, it's a very large organization, so just to, to give you an idea, it's about 90,000 people, a um, bunch of people involved in, in building experiences in, in different areas. We'll talk more about that. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us. My name is Ruth Sleater. I am the CIO at Sonos. To put that in perspective, we are nowhere close to as many people as 90,000. <laughs> um, I own all technology oops, that has nothing to do with the product development. So everything from our e-commerce site, anyway, orders flow, and all of the customer experience that a cus uh, products that a customer may uh, interact with at Sonos around transacting with us. I'm very happy to be here. Cool. So the topic that we're going to discuss here is actually how to reorganize uh, teams to be more uh, customer-centric, to be faster to adapt to customer needs, right? And how to do this in a, after, you know, a hundred years of story where we organize ourselves on a functional base, right? So we learned with uh, Taylor in the 1920s, you know, that we specialize and standardize, you know, and almost like a, in a Charlie Chaplin movie, everyone does one screw of a, a little turn of the screw and pass along to an endless chain of functions that will do the work. And hopefully, two years later, uh, a digital product will see the light of the day. Right? So, and what those companies here are doing is actually trying to put that logic upside down. It's actually trying to create, you know, cross-functional teams to actually orient them towards you know, needs of the customer and move faster to serve them better. Right? So it's, uh, it's uh, again, it's a big undertake. Right? So it's, uh, it, it's a massive um, uh, change, organizational change. And we were learning with them here. Uh, maybe I think we should start why. Right? why, why what, what was the initial motivation uh, for that journey? Why, why, why try to undertake such a, a massive uh, uh, challenge? And uh, where we are and where you guys are in that journey. So maybe we start reverse now, Ruth. Like, what, 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 what kind of a, what was the motivation other than, than us poking you, like, let's do this, this will be better? Yeah, so my background is product development. And so I've always, as I have built products, I was always intensely curious as to why we were building what we were building. And so I tended early in my career to go between product development and then field facing roles and getting closer and closer to the customer. So by the time I was at this point of leadership in my, at this scale in my career, it was almost intuitive, honestly, that you wanted to align with the end result, and the end result is to make sure your customers are getting what, what they need from you. I think as I got further into that, especially in internal technology, it's quite interesting because we have two sets of customers. We have our internal customers who need to use our technology, and then the end Sonos customer who's impacted by what we provide them. And again, like to me, aligning teams and people towards a clarity of purpose is how you get high performance. And for the clarity of purpose, it's all about delighting our customers. And so that's the why. The how is much more complicated, but really, if you can understand your customer, then you know why you exist, and then you can get some very, very clear outcomes based on that clarity. Cool. So, yeah, so building on that, I think the, I mean, for, for a bank, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer the why, then I'll, I'll you know, talk a little bit about the complexity of, of kind of making that happen, right? Uh, in particular, in financial services. 
Um, I mean, the reason is, is to be more customer-centric, right? To, to um, have the right products, um, the right services to the right people with the best experiences, the best journey, so on and so forth. Uh, easier said than done, right? Because in the end of the day, um, like for those that are familiar with financial services, especially large universal banks, um, you have segments, you have products, you have channels, you have regions, you have all these different ways of slicing up uh, what the experience is and what the product is in the end. Um, so just getting that right uh, is already, you know, a good step forward, right? Um, so I think the, the reason is that we know that um, doing banking uh, today is different than, very different than doing banking 10, 20, 50 years ago. Um, Itaú is about a 100 years old company, uh, and we want to be here for the next 100 years, right? And then doing banking will be different as well in the next five years, right? So the, the, the one, in the end of the day, the, the only one thing that matters is the customer, the people that we're serving, right? So that's what, why we're doing it. Larry? Yeah, I started my career in development, made a career out of project management. So I had the, like the triple five was my focus, right? Scope, time, cost. And if I could hold scope, so scope creep, was a bad thing. Like I was taught, drilled into me, that you get your client to sign on the dotted line, these are the requirements, and then you are measured on how, whole, how much you can hold that, and time, and cost. And then we would get a product out there, I get my triple five, and then it wouldn't be used. Like we would get a lackluster outcome and you know, through my career... But, but everybody meets their goals, right? Everybody meets their goals, <laughs> right? Those are objectives. And we collapse, go on to something else. And then maybe in a year, another project team comes along to try to, try to fix that. And I'm a bit of a reformer and a kind of agile kind of product owner. You think about ownership. We've got some great stories that I'll tell you through this course of this uh, session where the ownership makes a huge, huge difference. Like, it changes fundamentally the focus of their outcome. And then you see this and you're like, man, I could never go back. And it, you know, I had a technology background, a business background. And then when they announced my role as digital transformation, which is really blurring those lines you're talking about, IT and business and operations and all that, my IT friends were, came up to me and were like, Darren, thank God you're here because the business really needs to change. And my business friends, they came up to me and said, Darren, thank God you're here because <laughs> IT really needs to change. <laughs> and they were both right and they were both wrong. And it's been a phenomenal journey. You know, to your point, Fabrizio, mm -hmm. is really focusing on what those clients need, those clients' journey, and it's never ending. That's why we're doing it. We're, we're a 150-year-old company. We're mm -hmm. selling insurance. Like, our oldest insurance product was sold to a parents of a child born in 1928. <laughs> and that person's still alive. We're going to pay out that policy. And we're selling policies today. And we want to be around for another 100 years today. You better be. We better be. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you, you guys, both of you touched a, a, a very important point. Like uh, you, 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 you talked about purpose and kind of a being outcome based, like a, the, to being a, an instrument to kind of a mobilize people and people understand what they're what they're there for, right? And what's their their mission is. Like, uh, do you have like any any tips on how to actually materialize that to the team? Like how how goal setting or goal like a, the definition of goals change? Instead of you know the, deliver this project, you know the, this is delivered. You no, know, check all the boxes, give my bonus, and it doesn't it doesn't matter if uh, the customer you're using. Like how actually those uh, how you actually materialize the the change so people can actually act upon those changes. Like any any tips for whoever is trying to in, in, in start a journey? Yeah. Um as we started, when I came to Sonos, I've been at Sonos for about two and a half years, and this was a foreign concept. I was the, I, there hadn't been a CIO at Sonos for quite some time. So we pulled a bunch of teams together and then started looking what they were doing, and everybody was just kind of in their silos trying to do their best. Some had been sitting in the business and were really worried about that disconnection, and then some were like, we don't, like the purpose was just not there. and so. The first thing that we had to get comfortable with was getting to know our customers. And it sounds like super basic, but again, easier said than done, which is what I, what, how I structured things was that every single place in the organization, every single area of leadership had a business alignment as well as they understood what part of the customer journey they're responsible for. And even that alignment, right, saying, listen, you're the team that owns the customer success, right? How we're going to care for our customers post-transaction, right? Calls, help, whatever. That amount of alignment and then, let's, and then really clear expectations, right? When you ever ask me anything about leadership, like one of the first things I'm going to say or transformation is clarity of purpose and expectations, right? Like, I, I expect you to understand the business's needs more than the business needs. And eventually the goal is to be giving them the roadmap, not be taking the roadmap from them. And even that future thinking helps, right? Like setting the goal way out there so that they can figure out themselves how they want to get to the aspiration helped a ton. Yeah, we are, um, I, I'm gonna reinforce something because I think the challenge, <clears throat> the challenge that we have is not, not just a challenge of the, the concept of doing it, but also the scale of doing it in a, in a such large organization. Um, you know, complementing you know, some of the, the idea of the scale, um, there is about 18,000 people involved in tribes and communities uh, at Itaú. Um, we have about um, 70 communities, which are tribes uh, of people. So it's a very large uh, group of people, right? So just um, like standardizing a bit and kind of you know, bringing the idea that you need to start what you're doing with the customer and not with um, you know, building a feature or um, just, doing, just the creating the business value for the sake of the business value is already a good step. <clears throat> I think with that, um, some of the things that we are doing um, is, uh, first of all, just reorganizing, as I was saying, like moving from one large IT you know, technology organization to a technology organization that's um, uh, geared towards building uh, products like in independently, right? So all of these uh, 70 uh, tribes 
uh, they're almost like independent companies, right? They all have their own goals. Um, they will have, they, they're also very um, different in their maturity as well, right? Which is interesting because it's a, it's a large group of people. So I think just splitting like this large group into small companies, um, like throughout that, um, bringing like a, a different process that starts with the customer um, and, um, and also realizing like and, and kind of disseminating across that group and through the organization that being customer obsessed is what's going to take us to the future, right? It's not just about checking boxes and, and satisfaction. It's about obsession. It's about delivering what, um, not just what you know, but what people maybe don't know that they want. So we're in that journey uh, at this point in time. And also the fact that uh, right now we have this uh, position, which is actually where I am. Uh, I was at Itaú many years ago. I left, uh, was a consultant. I came back uh, about two months ago. Uh, and this role didn't exist, right? This uh, experience design that kind of you know, uh, uh, organizes that for the organization, right? For the whole organization. <clears throat> and I think the, the next step is uh, really being very um, quantitative about it. I think we moved uh, really uh, in, in the quality, qualitative side of process, uh, putting the customer in the beginning and all that, but having metrics for customer love, customer obsession, uh, what is top-notch excellence in experience, for example. This is what, what we're trying to, to build at this point in time. As you, as you touch about qualitative, quantitative metrics, like how are you guys measuring that journey? Like what the, the outcomes, the results are you're seeing so far from that orientation to clients? Like any, what, what the impact that you saw in, in NPS or revenue? Or like what, how do you guys measure okay. that success? I got a great story there. <laughs> I was waiting for the story. Uh, so we have a, a, a small team who's responsible for a piece of the client journey. In this case, you know, we've got our client who didn't necessarily choose Sun Life, their employer did, right? And now they're leaving their employer. And you know, we have this, uh, this opportunity for them to stay with us. We call it the rollover business. And the technology that we had, the, the, the conversion rate was 6%. Six? Six. 6%. Um, which, who knows, is that good? Is it not good? Doesn't sound good, right? Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> but um, so we, the, the, the new uh, team, the journey team, that was responsible for this um, component of the journey, they rebuilt the tool, they rebuild the technology, the journey, and they move that conversion rate from 6% to 11%. 11. Yes. Now that's where the story would end, right? In, in my world, I get triple five, yes. right? <laughs> but the team is persistent. Like they, they, they live on, and their job is to satisfy those clients. And you know, they also need access to the data. You know, so they, they, they would look at the data and they would look at the, the, the journey and they said, like, there was a lot more clients going into processing, you know? And they looked to understand why that was. And it turns out there were too many choices and those mm -hmm. choices were complex. You know, so we created, uh, like, an express way to say, so, hey, do you want us to make choices similar to what you had before? And they're like, y yes. So they, 
they made another iteration, 11 to 17, 17 to 22, 22 to 27, and currently it's at 29. So we used to think 6% of our clients wanted to stay with us. But what we realized was 6% of the clients figured out how to stay with us. And you know, as you think about putting the right ownership and then the right metric and the client satisfaction, you put them together, say, hey team, this is your job. They really, really stood up and continue to look at ways to make that 29 even higher. That, that, that's an amazing uh, outcome from those processes that we see over and over again. Like uh, the uh, empowered teams mm -hmm. are actually really smart and really yeah. like the sense Smarter of ownership. Smarter than we are as yes, leaders. Exactly. Like, uh, because mm -hmm. mo most often what happens like uh, the, the, what we call the, the beauty contest of ideas. Right? Right. Ideas have to go, important ideas have to go through the mm -hmm. board where actually the intelligent people live, right? No one else in the organization is intelligent, right? So the board prioritize what needs to be done and comes down a long and endless mm. chain of uh, manufacturing tools. So the people, the dumb people do stuff, right? So and what we see over and over again, like when we empower people with, uh, you know, the, 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 the true North, hey, this is, this is what you have to pursue. People really kind of uh, come in and the, 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 you probably have metrics of uh, employee engagement go up really mm. quick. Right, people uh, don't, don't leave for the, the tech yeah. giants anymore. Like people really kind of have a, a purpose here. I, I have a sense of contribution, right? My ideas yeah. matter. So that, that really, that, I, I guess, do yeah. you see employee engagement kind of going up with that, those changes? Yeah, we see that. And also the, <clears throat> what we're, trying, we're starting to see uh, is the difference between, since it's a large group, the difference between the different groups, right? Because the groups that have more empowerment they're also much more engaged, right? And, and you see that they, are much, they have much more ownership of what they're doing. Um, so we have, um, there is a, a, um, an agile transformation office that looks into that, and we're already seeing this difference between the different groups, right? But I think something interesting also uh, to share is um, the, the challenge of doing that in large companies, and, and I don't know, like in the audience, audience um, like who else is in, in large organizations, is um, to really kind of move, because uh, it takes time to move things, right? So we, we did a, a pretty large movement in the last few years with NPS, right? So NPS was implemented across uh, the organization. And it's great, right? Because it gives you a lot of insights that you didn't have before. It also was challenging because it also, um, you know, op leave, leave open a lot of questions on what's really happening to people when, when you don't have the, the right metric to, to understand that. And I, uh, you know, I'll share a story from, from my time in, in consulting. So it's not about Itaú, uh, really not about Itaú. <laughs> um, but uh, um, NPS is funny because when I, um, you know, looking at, as a consultant, looking at different companies, I had a, a, a client in, in, in telecom um, that had, they had a, a, a goal of reaching, I don't know, 80 NPS. And they were like 75 or something, like really doing well. Um, but the concerns in the, uh, the um, body of uh, the, go the government that measures satisfaction, they, are, they were the lowest. So something was happening in that NPS, right, that um, wasn't giving the truth of what's going on. And then going back to, to Itaú, now we're asking ourselves that question, like how, how we can get much more granular, right, into understanding what's really going on.
Cool. Ruth, we're, we're, we're talking about empowering teams and let them go. It's kind of getting, like getting away, like let, really get out of the way, right? So uh, any tip for the audience who's, who's kind of, what are the biggest challenges? Right? I must imagine like middle <laughs> management, people really kind of, they be really anxious about like letting go and really empowering teams. And what, uh, and how actually to make sure that they're empowered, they're doing the right things. They're actually going to the right direction. Any, any tips there or any, any learnings? Yeah, I mean, it can be incredibly scary to let a team just go and see what happens. It's also incredibly rewarding, right? So I think that the few things that I put in place or I think about putting in place when I'm thinking about these product teams are, and it's this, like, you have to play your organizational cards all the time, right? Like, you got to see the whole field and figure out what chess pieces you're going to move and where you're going to move them. And so for me, like, there are a bunch of things that I consider when I'm building one of these teams or working with a leader to build one of these teams. Which is like, first and foremost, what's the relationship with the business partner? Are they willing to be in an embedded cross-functional team and just work totally with each other? Or do they not trust us yet, right? Is there like a, a trust issue in building that team? And then those questions start telling me who and what kind of skills to seed in that team to even let them be successful, right? And as long as I can figure that out and I have high confidence in the skills that I've put in the team, then taking a step back and just letting it run is is actually quite easy. And so, you know, there are some teams where I've got, you know, from a maturity perspective, mm -hmm. the business teams are like all in, they wanna be totally embedded. We have like cross organization collaboration. It's like utopia. And that, you know, the, the leader probably doesn't have to be as strong, but man, that architect needs to be strong so they can live up to the expectations of the product manager. Or there might be a place where we just have like massive distrust and then you gotta go in a little bit more on heavier program management and heavier like value recognition. Um, so it, it really is just deeply considering the relationships and the skills on the team. You know, from a, you, you asked the question on, on employee engagement. So two things have changed for us. So one is our employees feel much more excited about the work that they're doing. My organization as a whole, because of this product centricity, we can tell all of Sonos really interesting things, like the amount of revenue that we've enabled Sonos to go grab. And when we start putting things like that, and we can talk mm -hmm. about the implication to NPS, when we start putting those things out in our organization, people, like, for a team, you know, for a team in an organization that sometimes feels so far away from the customer, now they're right up next to the customer. They're like, "Oh, I I helped us make that, you know, twenty million dollars, and boy, does that feel good." Mm -hmm. um, and that's all about the value recognition, being able to measure what you're delivering. So, <laughs> just comment on that quickly. The something that we did, um, funnily enough, it was not that long ago, um, and it sounds quite obvious. <laughs> But it's, uh, it's hard always, and the reality is always harder, is having the same OKRs, right, for uh, all the involved in the, um, in the squads and, um, and the tribes and communities that we call them. Um, so in the past, I mean, imagining such a large organization, it was really separate. It was all about delivering what the business uh, really was asking for and specifying with these large, like, <laughs> documents. 
And now, since they're all together, um, sharing OKRs and really, really part of that, it's, it's interesting because uh, last year was the first year that a bunch of people actually moved into that. And uh, it was interesting because the, the, um, the results varied, right, because of different business units. And, uh, and the bonuses changed in the teams that were not part of the, part of the business itself, right? So technology, customer experience, data, all the different parts. And, uh, and then people are like, hmm, yeah, that's, it changes, right? Like, you know, if I do more, this is going to get more results. So really, I mean, it sounds so obvious. It's hard to implement, and it has all this impact in people. It changes the motivation a lot, a lot. So we talked about a lot about cross-functional teams. So can you give us an example of what, what who sits in a, in a tribe, in a community, in a product team? Like we, we, by the way, we're using those terms interchangeably here, like product teams. Communities, tribes, there's so many words that I like, but the idea is like cross-functional teams that's uh, cutting across functions to deliver a part of the a user journey, you know, some customer-facing uh, outcome, right? So who sits in those, in those teams for you guys? Like, a, like I understand IT, but who else? Like a, it goes all the way to get, for example, legal sitting there. Like, who's, who's uses sitting there and who's still sitting in a kind of more back office type of, uh, type of uh, so role? I think, I think the first thing to know is the concept of cross-functional, right? So when you go into this change, you can, you can make lots of different calls at different points yep. in the maturity process, right? Like, um, but rarely do, like rarely have I seen successful trying to not make these cross-functional teams, right? To rejigger the functional organization of an entire company to align to this con concept of cross-functionality. Because ultimately, your go-to-market team still needs to be responsible for selling and going and getting revenue. And so I think some people think, ah, I can't do this because I'm never going to get the entire organization structure to turn on its head. Well, actually, I believe that collaboration across functional boundaries is what makes these teams so interesting and strong and helps the company grow from a, from a joint purpose perspective. So like, I super embrace this. So in some of my product teams, the product managers are in my organization. In some of my product teams, the product managers are in the business. I really don't care. As long as we're all like working to the same purpose, it doesn't matter. So for our structure, generally, it's somebody in the business who understands what the customer needs to experience. Call it a product manager, call it a product owner, have like infinite debate about what you call that role, but it's the person who really owns the customer clarity. And then there is a group of people that is responsible for executing on that, and then kind of a group of people that are responsible for making that safe. So to your point, if we're standing up a new business, Yes, we will have legal, we will have FP&A, we will have accounting, we will have business operations, like the whole stack of what it takes to execute the business. If it's a new thing that we already know how to do and there's no need for, say, new you know, legal contracts, then we don't have legal. And there's no one size. Like, it just depends on the problem that we're trying to solve, the nature of the business. Yeah. I love the answer. And by the way, just, I wanted to hear from you guys, but just wanted to interrupt to say, this is a fascinating topic for me, especially because that there's no blueprints. Unfortunately, the book on how to do this hasn't been written yet. Right? So those brave organizations here are kind of a you know, trailblazing the path there. 
with, uh, frankly, not a lot, just a couple nice ideas in their heads and just kind of a, we're, we're, we have, we must be a better way to do things, right? But there's no, you know, the, unlike the, the other way, the tailorist way to do things, you know, function-based, standardized, specialized, that's been around for 100 years. There's no books or blueprints. So if, you, uh, if you're brave enough, you join us in this journey. But uh, I wanted to hear from those. No, there are books. There are books, yeah. But they're, they're just not right. <laughs> <laughs> or they, rather, they just don't apply in every situation. Yes. It, they, to, to her point, like, it, it's, yeah. not, it's not like a panacea. You're going to do this one size fits all. Like, it's, it's really complicated. Uh, you know, that's a, a lot of... A lot of uh, a lot of wiggle room from theory to practice, like Mike Tyson would say. Like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Right? Right. So, um, yeah. And that's really one of the challenges that we face because the organization is expecting those rules, expecting conformity, mm -hmm. right? And, and in expecting fact, the blueprint, right? It, yeah, this yeah. is how we and do it. Exactly. It's actually mm. messier because it, it, you know, we spent, I spent my career kind of wallpapering over the chaos. Right? And this is how it's at. But the <clears throat> chaos is actually where the gold is. So how we've designed our teams is we've got the nucleus of squads. We call them squads. You know, eight to ten people. And I find like eight to ten is a really nice number of people that can work together, that can be in a team, that can own a piece of the journey or own a piece of the platform. And those teams work together, build stuff every day. Those teams are then part of a larger platform journey, journey segment. That's a number of those squads. And then somebody owns that larger you know, capability. And then, you know, then there's potentially a, like a third layer. But all of, at, at the second layer, we get legal risk, compliance together. We get finance, we get security, we get however we need. And then the, the ceremonies are where everybody can get engaged. Like, I didn't realize the value of a quarterly increment plan. And you know, all the things that, that I've done, and I generally run what you would call an agile transformation mm -hmm. office. And when we put in, like, my leaders were even saying, that is not a good use of time. Three or four half days of 60 people or 160 people in a room or a session, that's not, you need to get them out there working. But man, when you bring them all together and you look at the dependencies, the interdependencies, and you see the outcome, and then they leave, and then there are three months of productivity because everybody knows who's depending, everybody knows when they gotta get stuff done. It is like amazing to see. But I'm so happy because I've been looking for that rules book Right. And it just can't find it. Yeah, no. no I'll, I'll, I'll reinforce that. No, go ahead. Oh, no. I was going to say <clears throat> so, this idea of figuring out what the team needs to know what to do next is super important. Because, like, <laughs> one of the ways that I've been punched in the face is some of my teams um, totally embrace this uncertainty. Like, they're super good with it. These, these are the teams that are incredibly high in their capability, super confident super confident that if they mess up, they can just change and go build the thing that needs to be built. Like they're, they're brave and fearless and a few of them are in this room because they help lead those brave, fearless teams. Um, I have other teams that are super scared and they're scared because they do very business critical things. They're right to be scared, 
when we started talking about things like Agile and how we're gonna do work, because they were worried and scared, they got obsessed with how to organize work. Mm. Like, obsessed. They spent more time planning than they did doing. <laughs> In Agile, which is like not the point, and so again, you gotta recognize that these things are happening. So some of my teams have been banned from having any process discussion whatsoever, because I want them to be more fearless. Like they're not even allowed to come and talk to me about JIRA or anything that has to do with any type of agile transformation. Like it's just not allowed. And the other ones that are like fearless, I'm like, could you, could you please maybe think about it just a smidge, right? And it just goes to mm -hmm. like your, your increment planning kind of sets those goals so that everybody can just work and they don't need to worry about all of these like nits and gnats. Mm -hmm. well, so you wanted, wanted to jump in like a bit, yeah. I'm curious to, to how your take, like you, you have to solve that problem, not sure if trying to standardize at scale, like 18, you said 18,000 people working in tribes, like who, who, who is there? Like who's in sitting there? That's the thing, so there's no book, right? <laughs> <laughs> to answer that. So basically, um, as, as any large organization, right, it started with, there's a rule. Like every squad needs these functions of people, and then created that. And then it realized that actually, uh, the groups are very different, right? So you have platform groups, product groups, service groups, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and also the, the, um, the complexity of um, the, the role certain uh, specialties play within that. So a, a typical one is experience and design, right? So in some places, um, it has a very strategic role. It, it sits together with the, with the PM and defines what the product needs to be. In other places, um, it didn't reach that, and it's much more into like you know flows and screens and kind of in a more tactical way. So I think the the, the challenge that we see is that first of all we had to create a rule. Uh, obviously, it didn't work, right? So we're moving back to like the groups define what they need, but then you have the questions of do they know what they need, right? Because maybe they don't know how to use data like in depth or how to use you know, advanced uh, analytics or AI or personalization. Chat GPT. No, Chat no, GPT. We're not doing <laughs> I knew it, it was coming. No. <laughs> but, uh, but the challenge is, uh, but then how do you also educate the, the leaders of those uh, communities and tribes of what they need, right? So we're kind of in, in that space now, um, moving from the super standardized to something that's much more mature and much more sophisticated but with the challenge of maybe we're gonna have less people in places that we need to have people and so on and so forth, right? And the other challenge is um, how, where, like what kind of role they play, right? Because since it's a very large group of people, they can be within squads, they can be part of chapters, for example, outside and kind of organizing the discipline. Um, so all of this complexity uh, is, we're dealing with that right now, so I don't have the answer to that, but I know it's definitely not a standardization and it requires a lot of uh, holding hands and talking to people, right, and teaching them, teach them in a good way, right, like what the disciplines do and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's, it's amazing like uh, how, the, how people, uh, I have a story from another client, which I'll not mention, otherwise I will suppose them, but like that they, they but we, there was one cross-functional team that actually has, had legal in it, and they, mm -hmm. they never knew how lawyers could be creative. Actually, the lawyers <laughs> actually contributed to the product, like a, we cannot go that route, but it actually they, yeah. they help solve like how the product should be. Yeah. And uh, people were like, oh my God, I, I, Liga was the yes. naysayer. Like, I didn't know they had creativity inside Liga. It's amazing.
Same with the accountants, by the way. The accountants <laughs> come up with, cre I mean, they are very creative. Not in a bad way, in a very, very good way. But you want them around, like if you're building a new business, you want the accountants there. They come up yes. with all kinds of great things. So, so to your point on, on chapters, like uh, the, the, when you kind of uh, put those, those teams, it's amazing the, the fact that it, the people connect to that mission, right? So it's usually it's a business mission, it's a customer-centric mission, but do they lose connection with their function, with their specialty, like for when you have like a CX designers, like, oh, I'm embedded in this mission here to you know, acquire a credit card, customers, yeah. whatever, they super connected there, but it, I, I still miss you know, exchanging ideas about you know, uh, tools and, and, and pra yeah. best practices in CX, for example. The, the, how do you kind of solve that problem? You're, you're saying yeah. you're kind of creating this horizontality, kind of providing people, yeah. kind of putting them in chat. Is this a kind of a voluntary thing? People participate if they want to go. How do you guys think about yeah. it? Yeah, so that, that's a good question because we, um, I mean, there's always the challenge of like, you know, stretching too far, right? Like you either, <clears throat> people are either too far away or maybe they're too close and not part of the, the business they, they should be part of, right? So I think one of the, the things that we believe very much in uh, at Itaú is that understanding the business and having specialization is absolutely necessary, right? Because if you're, you're dealing with, um, uh, I don't know, pension, um, mortgage, uh, accounting, you know, bank accounts, credit cards, digital, there's so many things, right? And, and then those, especially like the CXs, the designers that are involved, they need to know like what's, what's the business challenge there, right, that's going on. So that's absolutely necessary. What we try to do is um, something that I think uh, it's been working for us, which is having this, uh, especially in, in experience in design, having a place to go back. So they have a home. Right? It's not that they are out there and they'll have, they're completely loose and don't have any connection. When they come back, um, this coming back means that they're exchanging uh, practices, methodologies, ways of working. But also, um, uh, we, in, in special, we have every Friday 15 minutes, a 15 minutes call with everybody. And the, this team is about 400 people, like within designers and experienced designers and researchers. It's a large group. We always come back on Fridays. We talk at least for 15 minutes all together. And this is like, this is what's going on. This was launched this week, this, this, and that. To create this sense of community. Because I think the challenge that I've seen in, in a lot of places, uh, and it's been happening, because I think it's a, organizations tend to go in a pendulum, right? They go all in one direction, they'll go another direction all the way again. Um, is um, not stretching people this far, right? It's having a home to them. And this happens to all the different disciplines that we have. And I think the, um, the other important part that we include in the chapter, I'm sure you do as well, is, is career path, career oh, yeah. planning. Right? Like you're, you're in there with you know, your CX folks and your developers and yep. your testers and whatnot, and you feel like you're, you're part of owning that business outcome. But at the same time, you're, you want to manage your career. And who's helping me manage my yes. career? But you're my chapter lead, who's also my coach, who understands the challenges that I'm facing every day, understands the next assignment I need you know, for the career path I want. So that, you know, I'm, I think we're very close from a sunlight perspective, as you are, Fabricio, that you, know, you, you feel affinity towards this team that you are part of developing you know, this part of the journey. At the same time, you know, you feel quite aligned as a family, you know, to this side as you're looking to, 
manage your career, grow your career, and improve the skills you have. We started something, just to comment on this, we started something uh, recently when it comes to experience and design, which is uh, identifying the different specialties within that. Because you have, um, you have product designers, you have service designers, you have researchers, you have market researchers, you have uh, mm -hmm. content designers, you have all the different specialties, right? Um, because in the end of the day, something that I noticed also in, in, uh, when we're doing these types of transformations is um, thinking that there's just one type of uh, specialty, right? It's like, it's data. But it's actually data engineer, data scientist, data <laughs> architects, uh, all these different disciplines within that. And even, um, and, and that goes into like what I was saying about um, like helping people identify what kind of uh, disciplines they need to have, right? But also this sense of uh, growth and career path and community because they don't have to grow necessarily into uh, management roles. They can go into specialty roles, specialized roles. Uh, and have that recognized, yeah. right? Which is one of the challenges, I think, when you have uh, agile models. And I think uh, I, I've seen um, uh, an example from Google. I think Google does that really well with the gurus and kind of different levels, um, because that helps also to create the sense of uh, career and development, right? So how do you strike a balance? Because once you kind of, a, like, like you said, like if people didn't figure out that they need a let's say a data scientist before that thing started, they're probably not getting one when things are running, right? So they probably have to ask a, a data whatever, hey, yep. can you learn how to do that on the fly and just do that? So there's a little bit of balance between, you know, people being more, people themselves being more multidisciplinary in, on those teams when they, they are kind of long running, right? Uh, because it's easier when you're a functional team, okay, we, need, we have a data scientist that's, a, you know, sharing his or her time across the 18 projects that are going on, right? So that, yes. that you, how are we used to solve this? But that creates a dependency, and you know, and the, the queues and the lines waiting for, and, that's it, and we're trying to break exactly that dependency and bring people to kind of a put under one roof and make it move fast, right? Yeah. So what, what a, the, do you find this complicated, like a, to kind of incentivize people to be a little, a little more horizontal, like a take on more roles when, yeah. when needed? With, uh, is, this a, is this a challenge or I'm just tripping here? I, yeah, I think, I think it is a challenge, right? So in these, in these groups of people, it, it just highlights, and I think we've always known this from an engineering discipline, that you have people who like to be super, super broad, and you, like, you have people who like to be super, super deep. And Finding a team that has the balance of those two types of thinkers is incredibly important because the people who like to be super broad will at least know what they don't know. The people who like to be super deep will get everything done. Um, and so if you have some of these like broad folks and they're like, they're hard, those unicorns are hard to find that are super broad, but incredibly curious and incredibly good collaborators. But if you find them and you sprinkle them across the organization, they at least start asking everybody the right questions. The other thing, honestly, that we do is like, I'm fully aware, data is really interesting because not, you know, a lot of, there's just a lot of misunderstanding about what all of these different types of data roles are. We try to do a lot of knowledge sharing across our architects and across our developers 
so that they begin to see the type of work that these other disciplines are doing so they can at least raise their awareness to know how to go get help. Now, this whole like dedicated resource thing is a whole other ball of wax, right? Like that's just really, really difficult. We absolutely have some shared service teams. Um, what I have found most successful with those shared service team are like, you know, a product team might not need this whole version of an integration engineer. Those shared service teams, I actually, those are the ones that I focus on being the best possible engineering teams in the world. Because the, they have a very hard problem to solve because they have to know all of this different stuff. And when they go into a product team, they have to be like, you know, SWAT people. They have to go in, raise everybody's trust really quickly, get the thing done, understand it. And so we put a lot of emphasis on those shared service teams being incredibly strong so that like everybody knows they're the best engineers you can find, for example, right? And so when they go into a team, everybody's like, oh, thank goodness, right? It's not like, a, oh, we got a loner, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> we, got, we just got a superstar. And that helps a ton. Cool. Uh, by the way, we're in the 15-minute mark. Thank you, Zella. So uh, the mic is here. If you wanted to ask one of those uh, trailblazers a question, feel free. Coming up. If you don't, I have a minute of my own. Please go ahead. Hi there. Um, Andrew Long. I'm a product manager with Evernorth Health Services. Um, I'm really curious, um, also having a background in UX design and, and being very familiar working with UX researchers, voice of customer colleagues, um, for a lot of those formal, rich um, insights and reports, um, but really interested in uh, what you've implemented in terms of getting everyone on board in terms of being informal researchers. Um, what did it take to, if, if you have developed that, that culture and normalized that, as well as any ways that you've been able to centralize um, those insights so it's not just mm -hmm. random emails or, or water cooler uh, updates of you know, <laughs> observations that they've seen or their own experiences, um, but how do you actually have that centralized to, to share with the broader company? Thank okay, you. so I, I can take on that. So it's, uh, thanks for the question. I think it's a, it's a very important topic and very core to, to what we do, and it's, uh, it's one of the challenges that we have. So I'll share with you what we've been doing, and it's by far, like, we, we, it's not perfect. We, we have a lot to do. Uh, so what we, we, we've done a few things. One is um, <clears throat> we have a centralized uh, research and insights team that has market and user research in the same team. So we have very deep, like, analytical, quantitative people, but also very qualitative UX research within the same team. That team is embedded into squads and communities, so on and so forth, but they're never enough, right? So you, you don't have people enough. So basically, we created a system of, um, there's some tasks that only uh, like a senior specialized researcher can do. There's other tasks and like quick research that can be done, and we have tools for that. So we created tools for the teams to do research on their own, uh, and they just consult with a researcher, for example. And we are in the process of uh, implementing something that's going to be the, for the whole organization, uh, which is a repository of all the, the research that we've done so far, at least in the last like 10 years. And that's going to be accessible to everyone. Um, so it's a, it's a tool, you know, and then it's basically scraped through like different quotes and stuff. So they have videos available and such to, to be able to democratize and, and, and make that accessible. So we're in the middle of that process right now. <laughs> It'll be accessible uh, with uh, generative AI. Right? <laughs> with ChatGPT. I think one of the keys there is to know going in what data you're going to need from yeah. the very beginning. Because we often see early, our early Agile teams, they would 
they would go through an iteration, and then they wouldn't necessarily have the data at hand to see whether that iteration worked. And sometimes it exists, mm -hmm. it might exist, it might take a while. <clears throat> but defining what you need at the beginning so you're not scrambling at the end is, is critical. Thank you. Hi, thank you for all the information. My question was, how do you measure how much are you going forward with customer centricity in your organization? You talk about uh, customer obsession, and I was wondering, how, how do you measure that? that? That's a good one. <laughs> What, what, what are the it's really, you asked a really hard question. Um, and you asked a really hard question because some of that is quantifiable and some of it is not quantifiable. Um, there are some things I don't even bother to quantify as a leader, to be quite honest. This is maybe one of them. Um, but I can tell you what I look for, right? I, I look for my teams, my leaders, to be able to talk. It's fascinating when you listen to a team talk and you listen to the number of times they talk about their customers, right? Instead of like the work or the details, but like truly internalize what they are doing and how it's going to make their customers happy or successful or just give them what they need. And so that's actually one of the things that I just always keep an ear out for is the amount of times they're using the customer. I mean, for ours, for our internal customers, sometimes it's just even their names, right? Or it's our, you know, bigger Sonos customer. That's one piece. I think the other piece for us, honestly, like I can measure revenue enabled. And that's a huge deal for us. Right? Like ultimately, if we're unlocking revenue and that revenue actually gets re realized, I know that we built the right thing. So that's the quantifiable one. I think that's great. Like when, when we see one kind of a proxy metric or, or evidence that we see in all clients that, that adopt that journey is exactly that. Like a, the OKRs or scorecards, whatever they use to actually measure success you start seeing more and more goals that are not related to our revenue, to yeah. our, you know, our belly, and seeing like a customer, kind of how we're actually creating value for customers here. You know, they're whatever they, how they measure in success, you see more and more of those goals. I want to compliment that because I think it's a, this is a really good question. It's a very hard one to answer because I think there will be all different, different inputs, right? So I'll give you more inputs from what we're thinking. Uh, by far, you know, uh, when I'm in the process of thinking about that right now. So the one thing that we're trying to do is to uh, identify, like, all in all these different tribes that we have, the communities, um, the ones that are that have indicators that are they are being more customer centric in what they do, right? Um, so understanding if they use a certain methodology that starts with the customer, um, if they have professionals like designers, researchers within the community. So we're, we're trying to, to find ways to, to quantify that. Um, we're also trying to um, come up with something that's, um, that's uh, an experience score for the organization, um, which basically uh, it's the, the idea is to show how customer obsessed we are as a company and, and how that's being uh, reflected in uh, outcomes for the customer. 
So understanding if the customers are um, uh, privileging us, like selecting us rather than the competitors. Uh, for example, if they show more, um, if we have more prestige compared to the brands of competitors, so we're trying to come up with a score to be able to see uh, how obsessed we are for, for the customer, for example. But it, this is all in the middle of, of our reflection because I think the, it's a very hard question. I think that we'll have a lot of different answers and I think I'm very skeptical about it because I think organizations have top-down and bottom-up, right? There's a lot of bottom-up that needs to, to happen. There's a, some of the top-down is actually easier, right? Um, it, we, we have a, an amazing CEO uh, at the company right now. He talks about the customer all the time. But that's just one part of it, right? We need to be able to measure to see that we need results for the customer. And the customer needs to love us more in the end of the day. So we're in the middle of trying to put this all together. I, I want to just put out a warning to everybody on this whole measurement thing. And I might say something that every single person in this room disagrees with, and I'm okay with that. You can all disagree <laughs> with me. Um, you know, very mature teams get pretty good at quantifiable measures. My experience has been that in mature teams, if you try to start saddling them with quantifiable measures, they tank because it's too hard. A lot of what we do is qualitative. Um, and when you start trying to get them to measure things, they, they again take this like deep dive into how are they gonna organize work and how are they gonna do all of these little minute things to add up to some measurable thing. And honestly, it has no value because they, they, you, you get, like you miss the forest from the trees. You get so obsessed with the metric that you forget the reason why you're doing it. And so I would just like guide a little bit and warn as you're working with small teams and they're like relatively immature, you'll know if you're a product manager or you're a program manager or you're an architect, you'll just know by the amount of angst in the team and the amount of friction in the team they're experiencing whether things are working or not. You do not need a number to tell you that. So just like, again, everybody thinks OKRs are wonderful, and we've all read the book. But um, there, there is a time and a place. I'll, I'll, I'll disagree. <laughs> I'll <come>. Right on. <laughs> See? <laughs> no, no, but I it's agree okay. with I think the concept. Maybe Go ahead. when you find like a balance, it's fine. I know Absolutely. Not everything is measurable. I just was wondering. If there is something, but it's okay. At least in, in my work and with my uh, crew, we well, we actually don't measure it. But sometimes we are like maybe more aware of how many questions I, maybe in this meeting I are around the customer, mm -hmm. or when we yeah. work, um, maybe when we present to our. A boss or something like that. How many times yes. do, do we do we uh, mention our customer and their needs? So, and it's that kind of awareness that I'm exactly talking about. Like you might not know what the good number is, but you know what bad looks like, right? Like if you just don't talk about the customer, you know that that's bad. But if the presentation goes customer, 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 you're like maybe that's not go so right, right? So, <laughs> yeah. No, well, thank you so much. And you do have to be careful that, to your point, and I kind of buy what you're selling, is there's a huge bias right now in my organization to invest in things you can measure, yes. especially in the short term. And that's a bit of a hazard 
Because right? there's a lot of things that I feel like are the right thing to do, don't really have short-term measurements. So yeah. there are some leaps of faith you have to make along the way. Thank you. Great question. Yeah. <laughs> I love a, a phrase by Ed Catmull, the CEO mm. of Pixar, mm. you know, at Disney. They said, not, not, not everything is quantifiable matter. And, uh, no, we, and sometimes we, we can't quantify things that actually matter. So yeah. it's, yeah. it's uh, uh, thanks. So my question's about culture. I do digital transformation consulting for industrials. I was thinking about what Ruth said about um, you have, uh, uh, on the one hand, a lot of pressure to speed up the digital transformation process, but on the other hand, you have um, perhaps more time spent in meetings and planning than actual execution. Um, so how do you guys manage that? What's the right way to speed that up? <laughs> Uh, okay, so I have, I have a little one. I have a quick one. I heard um, there's a lovely model that I heard on a podcast called ZAB or ZAB maybe here in the US. And it's really getting crisp on what is your end state? Where do you want to go? So that's Z. Then A is a really hard look of where you are today. When you get a good view on where you want to be, and you have a good view on where you are today, you generally know what to do next. And what I would advise you is not to plan past that. Because as soon as you do B, you get B done. You evaluate. Does your view on Z change? Did you get closer in A? And then you plan your next B. And then you plan your next B. And your culture, like mine, might want to go to C and D and E and F and G. Because right? that's what we used to do. We used to have this whole playbook. Project Management 101 says plan it all. But as soon as you get beyond that horizon where things are likely going to change, you've got to pull back that planning. Um, that's great advice, but I. I feel no pressure to accelerate digital transformation. I, seriously, I don't care. Like, like if Agile wasn't the way, then I, there would be some other way. I, I just don't, I seriously don't care. What I feel an urgency to do is to do the right thing by the company and our customers. And I happen to believe that like this product model and a little bit of Agile best practices and iterative development and all of these things that we're talking about, which are all like, part and parcel of this bigger discussion are really good ways to get there. So to your point, what I try to get the teams to balance is like, are you spending time talking about the thing that is gonna help you do the thing that you need to do tomorrow or the next day? Because if not, you probably don't need it to do it like right now, this minute, and just like move on and get the thing done that you need to get done today. Again, that's really easy for some of my teams and they over-rotate, so you gotta like slow them down and be like, no, but seriously, you should like run some tests, mm -hmm. right? And but the other, the other teams, it really helps free them up because their anxiety or the anxiety that you can feel to plan all of this is like, what if we mess up, mm -hmm. right? If you're only doing things in small chunks, who cares? Like you can undo it, like it's just less risky. So to me, it's like from a culture perspective, it's allowing a little bit more of this consciously because when you plan everything, you actually get this, just nobody notices, right? It's that chaos at the bottom thing you said so beautifully. And with that, 
our time is up. Thanks. Thank you so much. Stand, stop by the, the lounge if you want. If you have more questions with panelists. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.